I didn't read it. Welcome back to Elevating the Genre. We are your co-hosts, Christopher Morrison and... Dominic. Over there is Dominic, in fact, and we are here to talk about all things that make smart, geeky stuff actually smart and mostly geeky. And today, we will be talking about the immortal, well, probably not immortal, at least he hasn't died yet, uh, John Carpenter, um, and a little bit of celebration of Halloween and all this other good garbage, and just in general, John Carpenter has, you know... There's a massive influence on the geek world in general, um, so we're gonna break. We're gonna go crawling all up inside him. Um, that was disgusting. Um, and but before I do that today, we're gonna talk about, uh, like I said, John Carpenter. But before that, we have a segment that we call "What's Elevating Our Genre," where we turn you on to what we think is smart and cool currently out in the geeky world. Uh, I can't. I can never remember who started last time. Did you start last time? Should I start this time? I, I do not. I do not recall either. All right, fine. I'll throw it out there first. Uh, for me, I uh, it's Halloweeny, like I said, and even here in uh, not very Halloweeny Belgium and Brussels in particular, they did release "Don't Breathe" uh, this week on a Wednesday. All movies come out here on a Wednesday, by the way. Isn't that interesting? That is. And uh, so I can't recommend it highly enough if you are a uh, horror movie fan. Uh, and I'm not going to really talk about it uh, because I went in completely cold uh i had seen an itty bitty thumbnail of the poster and then just based off of a couple of recommendations from people that i really trust who had talked about it in the ether who also said hey go in cold um uh it's pretty kick-ass for what it is uh the only thing i guess i will tease is that it is a it's a ghost house pictures movie so that means sam raimi was involved um it is just utterly competent and it has no reason to be as good as it is for the, the mm. sort of premise that it has. It's one of those things. Um, and I was told it was excellent and I'm not a horror movie fan. I was told it was excellent. I, I recommend it for non-horror movie people. It's, and it's not even like uh, it's definitely a horror movie. It's, 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 you know, I think, you know, for people who like to split hairs and genres and bullshit and like it's indie rock and it's indie electro rock or whatever. If you like going down mm -hmm. the, 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 the sub genre, a wormhole, I would definitely call it uh, like a thriller more than, than a straight up horror movie. Um, it is certainly a horror movie um, by no, by no, uh, by every definition, but um, it's sort of, li it doesn't live in what a lot of people think of as the sort of like horror realm. Other than that, check it out if you can, you know, uh, I think Spoil it's a tiny thing for me just because, you know, like, all right, turn this uh, off. What, what is the, what is the monster or just what is the, the, you know, what stripe of horror is, it's, is it? It's a, it's a reverse home invasion movie. Enough said. It's interesting. Or, I mean, I, yes. So a lot said. A lot said exactly. So that's what it's doing. It's that's the that's the trope it's playing with, and it inverts it pretty damn well. Um, well, mm. the, again, if you read it on paper, I would have not given absolute two shits about this movie. Like fucking it all. I'm glad nobody told me about <laughs> what it was because I probably would have skipped it. Um, mm. And it's one of these projects that's just on paper. I just would go meh and wouldn't give a, wouldn't care. But the execution is so fucking good uh on a mm. filmmaking level and uh 
I'm going to assume on a writing level. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons to say assume in that situation, uh, not just for dialogue, but for setups and execution. It does feel like the director elevated the shit out of this movie uh, a bit. Um, it's great. It's really, really good. It's so fucking... Uh, I was going to say it's so fucking competent, but it's beyond competent. It, it's, it's kind of a mini... It might be a mini masterpiece, um, I, honestly. Uh, now that I've completely fucking overhyped it, um, go see it. Um, and it's contained, and it's small, and it fits all of my... It also rings a lot of my bells. So anyway, fuck that. Done. Over. Don't breathe. Check it out if you can, uh, and, and give it some money. Dom, what's going on in, what's going on in your geeky life? Oh, um, well, we're probably going to get into this deeper in a future episode, but uh, mm. this week I started chatting with uh, Greg Pak, mm. who is a uh, Korean-American... Now he's mainly known as a comics writer. Mm. Uh, he used to be an indie, indie filmmaker, and then he got quite a good gig. Uh, for Marvel, he's mainly known for writing Hulk and Hercules mm. and creating Amadeus Cho. And mm. uh, he's also interesting. He's written much of X-Men. Also, interestingly, he's writing mm. the Solo Storm series, which I haven't huh. read at all. But there is one. Okay. Um, anyway, that, sorry, that was a brief bio. And But the thing I came to today was a, a book that he's promoting called, I'm going to try to get this right, uh, mm. Kingsway West okay. um, through Dark Horse. And ah. it's uh, more, it's probably more of a, a creator-owned, uh, originated kind of property. And it's, um, mm. it's, it's pretty cool. It also is uh, more than you would expect. And, nah. and um, I, I haven't gotten too deep into it. Very briefly, it's mm. set in a future Old West. It's mm. it's basically it's basically a, a cowboy story kind of, mm. um, and it's set up sort of as um, the in 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 California in the future there's there's a sort of strong Asian faction and there's a strong sort of strong um, I would say Latino faction or Mexican or I don't even know what that term would be in the future oh, okay. because it's not <laughs> the future right but yeah anyway, exactly right uh, but two cool. two people of Two peoples of color mm. engaged in some sort of land resource war, and also there's mm. a magical doohickey that turns people into monsters with wings, ah. and then they're shot by guys with six shooters, and I think it's pretty cool. Um, and as I said, we'll we'll um, we'll get more into Greg's work soon because it does relate to our stuff today, and also right. he just relates to Hulk and all sorts of good Marvel things. So, Great. So that's what's elevating our genre okay. this week, um, and. Uh, we move into our uh, semi-new segment, uh, which is a Morrison's Mistakes, uh, where we clear up uh, shit that Morrison babbled on about last episode um, and completely admits that he got wrong. Um, say it ain't so, Chris. Uh, all the time. Are, are you so. kidding me? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it every time, and I'm going to say it wrong every time as well, probably. Um, okay. So here are the mistakes from episode our Robotech episode on Morrison's side. Uh, yes, Dominic gets massive... Robotech points for slapping Christopher around the character of Roy and Macross. Spoilers for Robotech, by the way, but fuck off. Um, Roy does not die in episode four or five. Like, I remember he dies in episode 18, only, you know, three times the amount longer than Morrison remembered. Uh, and the episode is called Farewell Big Brother. Shock surprise. Uh, so that's episode 18. Uh, the woman, the actress's name I was trying to remember from Firefly is Jewel State, uh, and she plays Kaylee on Firefly. I was trying to make Kaylee, a connection between Kaylee, Kaylee. and uh, okay. Annie. 
I couldn't remember Here her name because uh, my my head is full of Swiss cheese. Uh, Lunk is played by a gentleman by the name of Richard Epcar, who also did Ben in Macross and Grell right. and Vince. Uh, the other right. the voice actor for Lunk uh, and Annie. To clear up a little thing, Dom and I were sort of having a conversation about how old Annie maybe or maybe or not was. Um, Morrison went as low as eight. Dom went as high as eighteen. Um, it's not the price is right, ladies and gentlemen. It's but not. These were just our guesses. So apparently, according to the most PETA, if you pronounce that that way, wiki I found online, Annie, apparently, at least in the original most PETA, uh, again, for those who don't know, with the basis of uh, the third Robotech story, uh, is 13. Okay, but <laughs> so there you go. So literally still smart. on the edge of confusion. <laughs> yes, very, still very not really okay. Um, uh, and in the Star Trek. Okay, well. And the Star Trek Beyond writers are indeed Simon Pegg and Doug Young. Apparently, that was the other problem. So, all right, done. Okay, cool. There you go. Egg I also on my want to say, I, I like how whenever you say spoilers, you say spoilers, but fuck off. I think that should be our one of our <laughs> taglines. Yes, spoilers, yes but spoilers, but fuck off. I, you know, okay, a look, kind of I'm, a, I'm a total asshole about spoilers. Absolutely. No, I mean, by, by that, I don't mean like I spoil everything. What I mean is like I really hate it when someone spoils something for me. But I, I do believe spoilers have a, a, an expiration date, and that expiration date is somewhere mm. around 10 to 12 years. Like, seriously, if you haven't gotten on the right. ball. Um, and I try to give you enough warning to hit pause or jump or whatever, but like, right. it's really not everyone's fault to go tiptoeing around everyone for 12 years. Like, that's just not a right. thing. Like for, I, I get it for like the first six months or the first run of a, of a movie or, a, or, or like the first year or even five years of a book, um, or, or a comic book run, you know, just have some common sense and don't ruin anybody's day. And like, just throw it out there before you do it. It's like, uh, can I spoil this real quick? You know, and just be cool about it. Um, but again, I don't really fucking think you have to do that after 10 or 12 years. Um, seriously. Right. That's so so if I'm parsing that correctly, your phrase, spoilers but fuck off, is <laughs> translated as, this came out over five or 10 years ago, so yep. you, you could be caught up by now. Yes. So fuck off. Exactly. Exactly. A That's real spoiler is like, this is an active show right now, yes. so... And you that might, shit is work. not cool and definitely deserves... Important, important. Yeah, and, right. and definitely reserves the revocation of a geek card as far as I'm concerned, right, man. Right. And your shitty little, what you think is clever post on Facebook is, is we're, this is the thing, people. We're smart. We, we mm. get it. We, we mm. know what you're doing and we'll figure it out and fuck you, don't do that either. Right? Like, just, it's just, don't be cute on Facebook and be like, well, I can't, I can't remember. I'm sure I could come up with some, you know, like, uh, the, oh, wow, what a strange, what, how strange. I never expected that guy to die. And we can all oh, figure God. that right, out, right. right? We can, we're smart. Right. That's the whole point of this podcast. Right. We smart. all, it, we know it's that guy. Exactly. So now it's effectively spoiled. Yeah. So fuck you for that if you do that kind All of right, shit. All right. So also fuck you for that kind of spoil. Yes. Okay. Well, Don't do it. Spoilers. Spoilers. So fuck you. Because here's the deal, ladies and gentlemen. You're all in our in our in elevating the podcast genre, elevating the genre podcast world. We know you're smart. That's why you're here. You like smart geeky mm. things. Guess what that yeah. means? That probably means your friends are smart too, right? So yeah. they can figure shit out. Don't use code. Yeah, it's a, it's Doesn't work. Cursed. Okay. All right. Oh, I feel better. All right. Uh, or wound up, one or the other. All right, Morrison's Mistakes, over. John Carpenter, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, the filmmaker, the writer, the composer, um, uh, and I think he is, I don't think you can understate uh, any of the influence he has on all three of those levels, obviously writing particularly for film. Um, uh, and uh, we'll definitely get into the composer aspect of him, um, which may actually end up being 
as far as I'm concerned, one of the most. I mean, it's hard to you. It's hard to divorce and say like, oh no, his filmmaking is more quote unquote influential or important than his composing. Because to me, a he's he's they go together like fucking hand in glove anyway in terms of association and everything else. But whatever, I suppose somebody could make that call. I'm just not going to. Um, so we'll, we're going to do a bunch of that stuff. Uh, we're going to talk all about, all about that stuff about this guy. Um, so uh, you know, just a real quick setup. If I don't know how you would have gotten to this podcast and not really know, but you know, John Carpenter, filmmaker, starts in the late '60s, um, uh, pretty much leaps into the the worldwide consciousness um, with Halloween. Um, uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Again, with the score and with the film, uh, basically. And yes, I know about Peeping Tom and all those other fucking movies beforehand, but basically invents the slasher genre, a subgenre mm. for horror um, mm. with that movie, or at least makes it popularized, popularizes it. Um, uh, and whatever. And he goes on, and he, has, and he has a career that spans to this day, if you include most of his remakes, um, which you should. And we'll get into that reasoning a little while later. And the thing that a lot of people don't even understand, don't know is actually he's involved in two Academy Awards. So dig this. He's actually been recognized by the institution. I can see Dom's face. What could it possibly be? Number one is one that nobody would know about, which is uh, a short his short live action film that he was involved with that co-wrote and wrote this music for um, uh, won the uh, Academy Award for Best Short. Um, and then when he directed Starman, starring a young man named Mr. Jeff Bridges, it was Jeff Bridges' first nomination for uh, actor in a leading role. Um, and that's all. Really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Now, Bridges had been nominated twice before for supporting roles, um, but this was the first time he was nominated for uh, best actor in a leading role. Um, so, voila. That's, who, that's, that's a, a lot of who we're talking about here. And again, I think that gets lost in the... In, in when you say the name John Carpenter and when the horror genre in general hits the table, um, as another podcast I like to listen to says, horror is the only genre you're into that you tend, you usually have to defend. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's true a little bit with the fantasy genre and the sci-fi genre, although, again, that's changing. And I think – did you find that when you were younger, when you were a kid, particularly? Like mm. if you were into fantasy and science fiction, people were like, uh, why? Um, whether it was movies or books or anything like that. Oh wait, I'm sorry. Can you context that a little bit more? You mean because yeah. you're you're a weirdo, or? Um, <laughs> I guess we're yeah. just they just make that. you they made you sort of defend your love for the the sci-fi or the fantasy or the whatever. Um, did you? Oh yeah, sure. Because well, yeah. there was some kind of norm, and you were not doing it. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say why. I don't even know if that's true for kids today. Maybe it's different, but that's what I was thinking too. Um, um, but, but there was some kind of norm, and you were deviating from it. And you were. Um, and looking back, it's impossible to say why. Yeah, <laughs> because right. what was the norm? They sweet belly high. I don't know. Yeah, the, the Cosby Show. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I was just wondering if you had encountered that yourself. And because today, obviously, I think it's more. I mean, you know, whatever. Everybody loves Star Wars. Everybody loves the Matrix. Everybody loves the Marvel comic movies and all of that stuff. And it's literally mainstreamed it more. But the horror genre still does carry a certain stink to it, right? Like that. It's not. Hmm. Real. No. Okay. It's not like valid in I, some way, shape, or form. Um, I take your point. Yeah, but I do. Have, I do have a large rant about that. If you don't make it first, <laughs> okay. No, please. I'd love to hear your rant. No, please go for it. What's well? What's your again, rant about and I, so they said, um, you know, I'm not a big horror movie person, but I mm -hmm. do like certain horror movies. And mm -hmm. for me, the great thing about the horror genre is that it um, 
It's the filmmaking genre that most tests and exhibits the skill of a filmmaker, mm. a director. Mm. Interesting. And uniquely because, okay, like a drama, a comedy, could be a play. Mm-hmm. You, you shoot it, the actors tell a story, it's funny or it's not funny. You know what I mean? Mm. The, the, effect, the effect is, uh, it's, it's still rooted in just the, the, the in, in, in just, it could be people on stage telling a story. Yeah. But the thing that's so great about horror, and I don't know if anyone's like gone deep into this, but um, it's where all the, the tools of filmmaking, directing, craft, mm. you, you have to employ them to get the effect of horror. Because mm. honest, because in real life what's happening, in, in an excellent horror movie, you're usually being scared at nothing. Right. right? <laughs> You're being scared at a shot of a door that is creaking open slightly. Right. Right. Yeah, so let's just take that as an example. In real life, nothing's happening. But in the movie, you've got, well, how do we shoot the door? Mm-hmm. What does the door sound like? What's the music over the door? What's behind the door? How have we set up what's behind the door? Right. And um, I, I, so I don't know if I'm articulating that correctly, but basically it, that's why it wasn't surprising to me when a lot of directors – known for uh, horror like mm-hmm. Sam Raimi got into these mainstream huge budget mm-hmm. films because mm-hmm. to me they're they're the best film directors basically that's basically that's what I'm saying the mm-hmm. people are the filmmakers who are good at making horror movies are the best film directors because they understand all the things that only mm-hmm. film does they ah. make you sc- that, that's basically what I'm saying. they make you scared of an empty room by mm-hmm. employing music camera mm-hmm. shots of people maybe mm-hmm. but Editing, Just edit choices. Editing, yeah. Editing, hugely. Hugely. Yeah, like when to cut. When is the scariest time to cut? Mm. These are quintessentially filmmaking directing decisions. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. They don't come up when you're staging a play. Right. And that's, again, and that's as someone who also loves plays. Yeah. But yeah, it's harder. Well, I won't say it's harder, but it's. It's it uniquely more. Film. It employs more tricks. Mm. to make a wonderful horror movie than to just make a comedy where you're sort of shooting funny people mm. being funny. Right. You know, is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I think so. Anyway. And I think, and it's not, I mean, and some people may argue that like, yeah, oh, I don't go to horror movies to get scared and that's fine. Um, but mm. they, I think you, they, they do go to horror movies <clears throat> to experience exactly what you're talking about anyway. They know how to, horror movie directors have to know how to build tension, have to know how to hit emotional beats in the right moment and in the right order to make the fucking whole process work for you to, they really have to, know how to lay out a story and either put you ahead of that story or put you behind that story or put you in the middle of that story and know and you, and like you said utilize all the filming techniques to do that um to really get that across um and obviously carpenter uh does that in spades and when he does yeah. cross over and in fact when he does cross over to the quote-unquote straight big budget film which was starman which not everybody re- again remembers which is a, a jeff bridges vehicle at the time from universal uh, they put John Carpenter on it because he was coming off a couple, a couple of really big successes. He was interested, and John Carpenter himself has always said that his big influences are John Ford and John Hawks. And Starman, at its core, is basically a western story, the west, a western story with uh, an alien. Um, oh, the way he, okay. the way he, the way he viewed it, um, and it was a huge success. It was like I said, not only did it garner an Academy Award for uh, a nomination for Jeff Bridges, it, it was his biggest critical, his certainly his biggest critical success, and his. Uh, on the first run, largest 
box office success. Really? Well. It was starting to hit in the It's theaters? crazy to say. I, yeah, it hit pretty I well. I cannot remember that at all. Yeah, just because but, it's okay. it's it's not what you would expect from him. Um, I remember seeing it when I was a kid and just being like, even as a yeah, kid, I don't know, I was probably 12 or 13, and just being like, oh, this is an adult E.T. or something, mm. I remember, and that was sort of in the ether, and it, it I think it clicked on, all, it fired on all cylinders for the 80s. Wait, did, did it come out after E.T.? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, ET, okay, was okay. ET was eighty-two and the thing was eighty-two. Okay. So oh, ET okay, and the okay. thing came out the same <laughs> summer, by the way, okay. um, which is why the yes. th- one of the reasons the thing did not catch on when it uh, when it first when it was the first run. Uh, <laughs> it should have been called the the extra thing. The extra thing, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So yeah, when everybody was running around going phone home and Reese's pieces, there was a dog with fucking tentacles coming out of its mouth. Um, a genius dog with tentacles coming out of its mouth. Um, but anyway, yeah. So that's. We could go into the thing all day, which is probably, for my money, one of the not one of the not only just one of the best horror movies ever made, but certainly one of the I think one of the best films. Um, uh, is definitely up there in the top. T- whatever, if you're an asshole and rank things, um, uh, which I do occasionally, it would always it's always among <laughs> among the top. Just sidebar about that, ladies. Stop yelling at your screen or whatever you're listening to. Uh, here's my criteria for the best, and my best is like, I wouldn't change anything because who gives a shit why. Right, it's just like it's one of these things where I just wouldn't change a shot, uh, and the thing is one of those movies where I'm just like, I don't know. For me, I just won't change. I, I, there's no beat that misses for me. Uh, there's no, there's nothing I would change about that fucking film. Um, uh, I think it's a, it's uh yeah, it's a brilliant. It's lovely. Um, so let's let's go into a little bit of um, his influence real quick. I think um, just so that, again to sort of set up how he. It affected the world because I don't think we need to go into backstory and tell the history of like Halloween and all that stuff. And if you're interested in that stuff, that's why Wikipedia is for people. Um, enjoy. Um, or just go back to IMDb and, and watch Azuvra. It's pretty amazing. Um, so, I, again, you can't underestimate the fact that he invented a subgenre of, of horror or, again, popularized it. You can argue if he invented it or not. I would argue he basically, he really did it. He wasn't influenced by the Peeping Tom movies. He wasn't influenced by that those type of things. He was solving problems as a filmmaker on a low budget with Halloween to make it scary um, with a script that literally said the shape, right? And for Michael Myers, Michael Myers doesn't have a name, in, right? In the script, it's just the shape. Mm. And they're running around solving problems and you can thank, and you can credit the, the person they, they, they literally sent the day of to the costume store for the Kurt, you know, the William Shatner mask for Michael Myers, by the way. Oh, really? Uh, if you don't know that, yeah, it's like, he brought back okay. like a clown, well, I guess, Carpenter made the final decision between like a clown mask and this other, and this sort of William mm-hmm. Shatner thing. Anyway, so there you go. Um, he was just solving problems, man. He was, he was telling yeah. a story he wanted to tell and he was solving problems on a super low budget. Um, and again, that to me is always, this, like you're saying, it's the sign of a great filmmaker. Like they, yeah. they, and that is elevating the genre to, you literally yeah. elevates the genre just by being a whip crack of a good storyteller um, yeah. and creating scares out of fucking nothing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. In horror movies, like, the scripts tend to be very spare, or at least mm-hmm. they're the most, you know, they're the least language-heavy. It'll say something like, mm-hmm. he stabs her. But, mm-hmm. you know, then you employ every filmmaking trick you know, and John Carpenter's right. got a bunch of them, to make that the most interesting and most thrilling, in a horror sense, right. moment it can be. Right. And so you go from, like, you know, that one phrase and, like, Let's make this a movie, and it's yeah. That's that's what that's why I like horror, even though I don't actually. Like <laughs> it, 
because I hate dogs with tentacles and things which have too many eyes. <laughs> Basically, that's my prejudice. I just don't like things which have too many eyes. I don't know if there's a word for it. It's like the, uh, Lovecraftophobia yeah. would be my guess. Uh, yeah, it, it, it yeah. rubs me all the wrong way. <laughs> and, but and we're going to come back to that in Big Trouble in Little China, too. Yes, exactly. Speaking of which, so... Um, uh, and I'm going to save the music influence Sorry. part for yes. later. Uh, we'll talk about the music as a whole separate deal. Um, mm. And let's go ahead and jump into a little Big Trouble because the other thing that denotes his genius for me is that Big Trouble in Little China is a film that is literally almost 15 years ahead of its time, right? Mm. Out of nowhere, this fucking horror director hooks up with wuxia, people influenced by wuxia films in a time when Wuxia was maybe on television at like three o'clock in the afternoon on some UHF channel as like just some crappy filler if you happen to be in like an area that had a lot of Asian immigrants running around. So for him to make that stuff, that kind of stuff, the centerpiece, because it is not a ripoff of like a Bruce Lee film in any way, shape or form. Mm. Right, right, no, it's not. There is no Bruce Lee character in Big Trouble in Little China. So for American tastes at the time, and we're talking 19, uh, 1986, 87, they have no context for what the fuck this movie is about, man. Except for they wedge in the Kurt That's Russell true. character who's busy doing a amazing amalgam of, of John Wayne and Clint Eastwood smashed together as a massive, massive idiot. Um, <laughs> uh, who still manages who still manages to kick ass, though, uh, in the right times. Right? Um it's such a Jack Burton is the name of the character is such an amazingly wonderful critique of, of machismo in America, uh, the male gender roles in action films and, and, and basically it, it's crazy. It ends up being a fish out of water, wuxia, uh, martial arts, American action film. And it fucking works. That's the crazy pants part about it all. I don't know. Do you agree with that sort of melange of crap I just threw in there? I I couldn't agree more. It's Ooh. one of the best films ever because I don't see watch. I haven't seen the thing, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, Big Trouble in Little China is uh, one of the best films ever. And there's so many reasons why. I'm going to start with one so we can just clear the air a little bit because this has been coming up a lot. Mm. A lot of people revisiting Big Trouble in, China, in Little China who haven't seen it a thousand billion times like we have. Yeah. There's a, there's a sort of uh, uh, PC hesitance because people are like, oh, this movie's probably really racist. This movie looks really? racist. You don't yeah. know about yeah. this? Yeah, no, people I missed this. Think, really? Well, I mean. Wow, no, I, no, mean, I totally people... missed the conversation. Okay, no, no, I hear you. Yeah, no, I mean. Um, well, uh, people people might be uh, nervous about it about it being racist. Okay, yeah. In sure. fact. No, I understand. In fact, on the surface, because it's kind of. Uh, has the cheesy B movie, uh, you know, stylings, it kind of looks like it should be a racist movie. Yeah. In fact, it's one of the best Asian American films ever made. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm not just being that guy who's speaking for all Asian people (laughs) everywhere, whatever. I'm a, I'm a Chinese American person, Mm. um, from an Asian American, um, standpoint for political artistic, whatever you want to call it, it's, it, it's, it's an incredible achievement mm. because, because it should be racist. <laughs> because, and the way, and the, way, the way you know why is 
I'm going to briefly compare it to <laughs> its obvious counterpart, Showdown in Little Tokyo. Uh, Have you seen Showdown in Little oh, Tokyo? Oh, for sure, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah okay. Now, of Showdown course. in Little Tokyo actually is kind of racist. Yeah, right. You know, and... Okay, uh, I'll... I'll um, and, and the essential reason why is, okay, first the band. In Showdown in Little Tokyo, mm -hmm. there's... Uh, Similar title, obviously. There, there's a big white Dolph Lundgren who is good at being a samurai, and he basically, and he's partnered up with a sort of hapless Brandon Lee, who is unsure about his Asian stuff, his identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dolph Lundgren takes the lead in going around kicking ass, slicing off the heads of the Japanese gangsters, mm. fucking the women. Yeah. And um, at one point, Brandon Lee is even reduced to commenting on what a big dick he has. Yes. Okay, so. Why is that racist? Because it's, again, Mighty Whitey, and it's, mm -hmm. um, for some reason, Dolph Lundgren is the center of everything, mm -hmm. um, and yet his story wouldn't exist without the Asian stuff, which is the story, but mm -hmm. he, has, he has to be the center, and we're reduced to, you know, uh, commenting on his dick as he's, right. you know, having sex with a woman in a hot tub, and that is fucking racist because it puts Asians in their place. It, yes. it subtly reinforces this narrative of, you guys are just this, and we get to decide what you are. Yeah, and because and because people, you know, in this piece mm. era, they don't really understand what racist is. Yes, <laughs> right. People are very sensitive. Yes. So I want to be very, very clear about this. Mm. What the problem? What gets to be upsettingly racist is when is is when a uh, a, a film is is like putting people putting you in their place, and right. it's not your place. You know, it's not your place. Right. So back to that big trouble in Little China. Yeah. So excellent because, um, as you say, yeah, yes, it's got a white male hero, mm -hmm. and he's a total buffoon, but Please. also lovable. Yes. It is actually the story of Dennis Dunn and his true love. Yes. He is the sidekick. Yes, but. Also, not really. Yes, right, because he takes care of just about everything. Except he takes care of about just about everything, and he doesn't do it in the way where he's just like, "Oh God, fucking Jackson trouble again." Guys, guys, uh, he's doing it with his own agenda. Yes. So while having Kurt Russell on the front and Kurt Russell being funny and adorable and game, and God bless him for doing all that stuff, the Asian mm. characters have agency. They have their own stories they're playing out in yes. their world, Chinatown, and yes, so. It, it's, 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 it's about, it's really about showing a people and their culture in genre, again, mm -hmm. in a ridiculous genre. You can, it's not, it's not racist just that Chinese people are doing Kung Fu. Yes. It's racist when Chinese people are doing Kung Fu and that's like the only thing that they, they do, do and they get killed by Dolph Lundgren. Yes. You know? Right. <laughs> yes. Oh God. That's like, fucking perfect. Yeah. You know, you know I mean, that's, that's, that's what makes a racist like, well, yes. really Thank just, you. he just kills me every time. But anyway, anyway, so it's, uh, I don't know, I, I just hope to, if, uh, if you come away with nothing else from mm. this, is not only is Big Trouble in Little China great for all the movies, all the reasons we're going to talk about, it's a great Asian-American story. It's a great yeah. Asian-American film. It is not racist at all. It yeah. is race-elevating. 
Yeah. Sorry. Excellent. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, uh, thank you for that. I think that's a fucking great breakdown also of that, which is, which is good. It's really racist. If you have your Asian characters are only good at, are only there because they do martial arts and then a white guy wanders in and just murders everybody because he's better than them. Right. That is it on its face. It's a perfect encapsulation. Thank you for that. Uh, I will be using that a lot in the future. Um, <laughs> but so big trouble in little China. So the, so the history, little history of the script is apparently it was actually some Western written by a couple of other guys. And then it gets in the hand of another guy who we may, I don't know if he's, he's got enough of an oeuvre actually for us to do a whole podcast on, but a guy named, little dude named W.D. Richter shows up and does this rewrite and turns it into fucking Big Trouble in Little China. I have, I don't know how or what the fuck happened in that dude's brain to take this Western and make this fucking shit happen. Because for those that don't know, this is the same dude that goes on to write fucking Buckaroo Banzai and his adventures across the eighth oh, dimension. Oh, God, yeah. Same, Man, genius. same fucking guy. And I just, genius. I mean, if you want two singular movies, particularly in the 80s, like, not only are they quintessentially somewhat, well, I mean, Big Trouble in Little China is certainly very 80s, but like, Buckaroo Banzai, it's like 80s on the nose while still being this radically bizarre, bizarre, incredibly funny um, almost um, Zucker Brother level uh, insanity type of a film, um, all encased in science fiction and, and again, sort of genre mashup things that are happening way before anyone was thinking about doing genre mashups, right? Um, so mad love to the WD Richter who writes this script and then it gets to John Carpenter and some reason John Carpenter goes, yeah, that thing. Um, and is totally game with bringing on Jeff Imada and uh, to, to, you know, to work on the stunts and everything else and bringing in the wires so much so that they, <laughs> it's meta at the same time. Kurt Russell has a line where I'm getting this thing where guys are flying around on wires and, and creates this piece of pop culture that literally no one was ready for. Uh, I remember seeing it <clears throat> at my friend's house because it was on Showtime and they had recorded it on Betamax not even knowing what it was. It was a family of three daughters. I have no idea why. And these three daughters were not super geeky. I don't know why, but they had it on and I wandered into the living room, much like my Robotech story from last week. And I was just transfixed. I was like, what the shit is this? And then they're like, I don't know. And I ejected the tape and I was like, big trouble, little time. I don't even know. I think I ran. I think I'm, uh, I think I'm, I think I probably, I probably stole the tape. I don't know how I got my hands on it, but I took it home. <laughs> I took it home and watched it from top to bottom and was just and enforced my parents to go rent it from the video store and just watched it endlessly um, constantly. Uh, so it, it somehow reached me and I don't I'm not sure on what level. I think it was just Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell's performance. For sure. was super funny. Um, and I knew I was old enough to know that like what he was fucking with and that I mm could associate with that because I never associated mm. with Clint Eastwood or, uh, or, mm. or identified with John Wayne or any of that stuff. Um, someone making fun of sort of the machismo bullshit. I was old enough at the time to be like, I agree, uh, kind of stuff. Dennis Dunn was like, uh, I just loved his performance as well. He is a crazy good actor that is mm -hmm. criminally underutilized, uh, in Hollywood. He's, uh, great. he's fantastic. I just watched Prince of Darkness last night. Um, and he's so fucking good in that. Um, <clears throat> movie as well, another John Carpenter movie for those that don't know. <clears throat> and then it just does, like you said, this brilliant job of actually putting you in this Asian-American storyline. And at the time, a good friend of mine was a gentleman by the name of Nick Tan, who was Vietnamese, um, not American, he's Vietnamese period, but he's a Vietnamese immigrant. 
and he was teaching me about a lot of things, about a lot about uh, you know sort of certain Southeast Asian cultures. Obviously, this is Chinese; it's a little different. Um, and at the time, I was too white and young to know the difference, probably. Um, <clears throat> so, and I was a I was starting to study martial arts in general. Um, that was the beginning of all of that stuff, and was able to just look at the action sequences and just be like, never seen anything like that before. Mm. You know, I'd seen some martial, I'd seen some you know Bruce Lee movies and stuff like that, but the wire work. Still to this day, the alleyway fight scene with the pork chop express in there, with James Liu walking out yeah. with his fucking crazy ass fucking hair. Not James Liu, Al Leong walking out with his crazy hair, his crazy eyes with the fucking meat cleaver, and the fucking Chinese standoff like goosebumps. Yeah. Like, still yeah. one of the greatest action sequences put the film yeah. as far as I'm concerned. No, Chris, if you'll indulge me, t- talk a little Please. bit more about the fighting because uh, sure. that's an area of your expertise. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. If I have one thing about Big Trouble in Little China, it's like maybe the fighting scenes seem a little dated or they don't seem... They, Do they, uh, Do they, they don't, Or maybe they aren't kind of exciting in a way, but they're also <clears throat> going for comedic things. So tell me I mean, what do you think about the fighting sequences. Oh, that's interesting because I, I definitely don't have... Again, maybe for those that don't know, haven't followed up on us, I did make my living uh, for a while as a, a fight choreographer. I have a martial arts background, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Um... Uh, I mean, to me, like I said, I still think that alleyway, that first alleyway fight sequence, um, and this may be why you're responding this way to it, because I think it is, it sets the bar so fucking high, um, uh, so that maybe some of the other fights later in the movie don't, don't quite live up in the comparison. But I think the pace of that fight sequence is so good. Uh, the editing is so spot on. And again, the filmmaking aspect, what they're, what's great about Big Trouble in Little China is they and this is a problem that I feel like wuxia movies have now in general, which is there's a faceless horde, right? That the big, mm-hmm. you know, the Jet Li comes in and walks and wades through. Big Trouble in mm-hmm. Little China spends so much time with different, um, with different clan members and they, have, mm-hmm. and they have their signature move or they've got their whatever or they've got, they've just got a certain look or, and you get- A some, certain weapon. A certain yeah. weapon yeah. or, but just, there's just character involved in each moment, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each edit goes to another fight that has a, a slightly different rhythm um, as mm-hmm. well, and I think it's it's rhythmically just out of this world fantastic. Um, so I really appreciate the fighting in that. I mean, obviously, when the three mm-hmm. storms show up, uh, some of the wire work is really <laughs> primitive. Like you literally see Rain just sort of stand there and be like, one, two, three, lift. Um, you know, like so that's kind of not great. Um, but you know. Overall, I think it's, uh, and then when the storms start flying around a little bit later, sort of thinking when the palace is collapsing, some of the final storm fight sequences I think are, are quite good and again very unique. Um, mm. um, <clears throat> Jeff Imada, who is in the movie and who is influential in that, it's funny because actually on IMDb there is no fight choreographer actually credited, um, mm. uh, which is odd. But I know Imada was involved. Um, and Jeff Amata is uh, a, a disciple of a gentleman uh, named Guru Dan Inasanto uh, of Kali uh, and JKD, Jikundo fame. And that is one of the things that I think <clears throat> that arrested me when I, w- when I first saw this movie. The fighting is, has, a, has a very much more direct style than the, the traditional wuxia films or the traditional um, sort of um, big northern Shaolin type movements and form work that though a lot of that stuff is not in this movie um, 
And a lot of it is grounded as sort of more in the JKD world, the Jeet Kune Do world, which for those that don't know is sort of Bruce Lee's training philosophy, um, and the Kali world, which is um, <clears throat> a, a different style of martial arts. It's, it's very direct. Uh, it eventually would gain international fame through the Jason Bourne movies, uh, if you appreciate the fighting in that. This Jeff Imada was the fight choreographer on Bourne movies, and he's, doing direct, he's just doing Kali in that almost directly. Mm. So this is a little sort of, you know, a taste of that before... Um, before it gets sort of gets a, a spotlight shined on it on the, in the Bourne movies. So, in my oh, opinion, okay. huh. um, but that, I mean, d- don't get me wrong. Huh. Th- there's obviously Chinese boxing in this, and Chinese and uh, some Shaolin influence stuff. And I would my guess would be yeah. some Northern Shaolin versus some Southern Shaolin stuff. That's all guesses, people. So, if uh, people actually know, please do let us know. Um, yeah, please. But there is it's- there is a brutality to that first alleyway fight scene that is very very Kali esque to me. Is he associated with Diana Inosanto or you're related? Maybe. Yeah, might do, you be... know, do you know who I'm talking about? No, she's I don't. Also, she's also in the fight choreography world, and I assume oh, related well, then, to the yes. guy. Then she's married. That's her husband. That's her wife. That's his wife, or his, or she's his <laughs> Whatever. Husband. However that works. That stuff. Yeah, I think they're they married. They are associated. <laughs> yes, they are associated. Yeah, they're married. Okay. Um, yes, they're okay. That's right. And yeah. she's great, too. She's, yes. She's, she's good at her job, too. So they, they do some good fighting shit. Yes, and um, to mainly agree with you. Yeah, what I was what I was getting at was was the fights at the end seem silly, but that's part of the beautiful journey of it. Yes, is that that alleyway fight is so is so good. Mm-hmm. It's got the all the weird levels. It's got the weird perspective of guys in a truck. Yes, it's all got all these little escalations and complications, and it resolves with the truck, of course, mm-hmm. just just great. Um, and it's again part of the genius of the film is it takes you on this crazy journey because you couldn't yeah. have that. You couldn't have that wire fight in like the first reel of the exactly, film. Exactly right. It would be like you're you're in San Francisco then. By the end yeah. of the movie, you're in a fucking whole new world. Yes. And that makes sense. Yes. So and that's, even though it's ridiculous, mm-hmm. the fighting gets sillier. It's still all of a piece, which is right, which is fucking great. And it and you you really yeah. the other great thing about Big Trouble in Little China is Jack Burton is and we always people people always say one character is the audience you know point of view. And Jack Burton, for an American audience for this world, is you are right there with him half the time. You are yeah. on that journey with him. And when you need to go and sort of join Dennis Dunn being kick-ass Dennis Dunn, um, uh, funnily enough, uh, Dennis Dunn actually didn't know martial arts before so he trained for this movie. Um, you, can, you can take sidebars. Acting. Acting. Um, you, can take, you can take some time with him, but it always ends up coming back. It's really a movie with a, with a super point of, with a, with a point of view character that um, if, if this movie made any concession to try to say it was, uh, hey, this is 1986 or 87, uh, and we know you don't understand what we're doing, or at least here, you know, it really tried to give you the, the movie from Jack's point, Jack Burton's point of view. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and, that's, and like you said, it sort of doubled down, doubles down with the fighting. The fighting gets crazy and weirder, and people treat potions and magic gets involved and it, and goodness the other thing is like some wuxia movies i get angry at because they don't explain to me why everybody's flying around on wires whereas this one mm. you get everybody drank fucking you drank a potion out of the 16 in bag man fuck it it's it's right. it's go time you can see that you can do things other men can't normally do and you can see things other men can't normally see uh and if it's hollow have- fuck it um you know right <laughs> anyway sorry 
And you can have a kind of awesome homoerotic moment in the elevator, which is oh, one of the best, loveliest parts of the movie when they're all kind of... Fucking I best. I can't remember what they say. They're, they're like, mm. I feel kind of good. I feel kind of good. Yeah, I feel kind of good. You say uh, all these dudes checking I each other out before it. they're about to go fight is it, demons. And then Jack ends up, yeah, is it... Is it, is it, is it, is it is it warm in here? Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, like no, like says everything and nothing. You know, it's perfect. Uh, it's it's yeah. No, there's... are we going to talk about the writing first or the music first? If we're continuing on the Joel Lodge, because uh, uh, let's let's dovetail real quick into the writing. Go for it. What do you have to say about the writing? Well, well I mean, just a, again, like being more than it needed to be, and again, credit to that weirdo Richter. I mean, the WG. beautiful genius weirdo weirdo that he is. And I don't know what was written and what was improvised, but still, you know, just to this day, I can I think about the weird little things they say. Like so many times on the street, something happens, and I just want to go, "Son of a bitch, must, must pay." pay. I do Which it all the time. It's hardly English, <laughs> exactly. But it's somehow it's uh, it's like it's just such a perfect. Kind of funny, kind of tough guy line. Ugh. But that doesn't work, and, right? Like, it's so... And out of Jack Burton's mouth, it's just so perfect. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's... It, 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 yeah, that line... Son of a bitch must, must pay. pay. <laughs> <laughs> I get happy just thinking about it. And so there are all I, sorts of things like that. It doesn't have... It doesn't have a false note anywhere in the writing, and many of these yeah. genre films suffer from kind of a phoned-in scene for ex mm. exposition or whatever. Mm -hmm. Every character's entrance has a purpose; they have an objective. Um, even 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 Kim Cattrall's character, who could be mm -hmm. regulated to sort of the white woman mm -hmm. role, she finds her. You know, she has her own, her own place. She's very funny and alive, and she's trying yeah. to help her clients and. Um, Yep. They have a sort of sweet romance, and she's all dressed up in the the, the weird outfit, Chinese the gown. Gear. Yeah, right. It's, uh, it's uh, and it's a weird, and it's also a a very simple light commentary on the white savior complex because that's how she's originally yeah. presented, right? That she's yeah. oh, she's here to give these young Asian women a chance, and blah blah blah, and she just fucks everything up, um, and it's fuck it, and then gets completely sucked into the. She gets pulled into the world that she was trying to sort of fight against and basically has to, and sort of, I don't know, she doesn't really come to accept it, but at least it's not like she doesn't save anybody. Like there's <laughs> no saving in the sense that she, as she started out with, right? right. Um, which is what's but she, great. And she ends up having empathy for the mm -hmm. situation. She ends up being turned into, you know, united with Action. this other woman who bizarre magic. They both have green eyes. They both have to be sacrificed at the same point or something. Yep. But, you know, she actually adopts their their position and is um you know then 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 we have to save everybody because exactly. <laughs> we're on exactly. the same boat well on the same boat apparently there you go. Boat. anyway yeah. uh, <laughs> no which is fantastic yeah absolutely which is, yeah and yeah that's and of course yeah there's some there's some uh, you know just uh, unbelievably quotable lines in there you know may the wings of liberty never lose a feather <laughs> Um, right, and said at the right time, you know, right, just the, the right. ridiculousness, six demon right. bag, come on, I mean, uh, for years I wanted to open a company and just call it six demon bag for no reason whatsoever, outside of just the fact that six demon bag is a fucking great, great, yeah. just a great use of yeah. English, like just those words yeah. in that order make yeah. me so happy. Um, yeah, and, and Victor Wong kills everything that he says, he so let's just give a shout everything. out to Victor Wong. Shoot, you've seen him. You've seen him in a thousand billion movies mm. as a, a old Chinese guy with sort of a weird eye, Ugh. and he's 
just incredible in this movie. He's yeah. a super sorcerer. He's and John Carpenter uses him brilliantly in in the two times he uses him in this, and then like I mm. said, I just watched. He's in Prince of Darkness as well, and he is. Uh, the opposite. He's this completely grounded physicist mm. character that um, is sort of holding things together and has some. Uh, I mean, he well, he still has he has some sort of poetry in that too. But um, but uh, he's great um, uh, as well. Um, and uh, David Lopin, uh David, uh, um, uh, is it James Hong? James Hong, James of course. Hong. James Hong is James Hong. Yeah, yeah. James Hong is just at the chewing scenery best in like. Mm. Oh yeah! All of this, like it's... oh yeah, the way he kind of like eats his fingernails. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ! And it just works, man. Creepy. And exactly, it's creepy, and that's and that's the I think that may be the symbol that everybody reacts to, maybe on the old poster where he looks like almost like a Charlie Chan villain on the poster, but he he he's executing it from like a true like he's just a fucking crazy, insane lunatic wizard. Um, and the way he's introduced and the fact that they comment on him right away, David Lopin starts out as this little weasel, literally just like this disgusting mm. little figure in a wheelchair. And the fact mm. that they just comment constantly that he's this weird sort of perverty, perverted, like guy who's looking for a girl in 500 yeah, yeah. years, David, you can't find yeah, a girl yeah. to fit the bill. Uh, you know, uh, just, it, it, it contextualizes it brilliantly and, and allows that character to expand and, 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 in a way that isn't caricature that, that well, it's commenting on the caricature at the same time it is caricature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, which is, it's which, which is exactly what this movie pulls off all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. All right. Music time. Cause we're, I think we're going to expand the music from big trouble into sort of his, uh, John Connors. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I actually didn't have anything to say about the music in big trouble. Cause actually it's, it's the one I don't remember. Oh, okay. Well, well, let's talk about, do you, do you, did you want to talk about, I know, um, you want, well, just the, what I, is your experience with John Carpenter's music? Oh well, um, because he, I, I, he scored so many of his movies. I don't know if he scored all of them. A lot of them. Um, yeah, not all of them, but a lot of them. But again, filmmaking craft. He had a rock band background, as I mm -hmm. remember, or something like that, and um, he understood all the tools of, of how to make a movie achieve its effect. Mm -hmm. Most. Obviously in Halloween, because yeah. I haven't seen Halloween a lot, but I have heard that theme song a lot, and it makes me scared, but kind of excited every time. I, I had a... That's you know, a great point. Family friends would just come in, like, knew a lot of things, and just play that... What's going on? You know, you're, just, you're, just, you're just put in a totally different mood, and... <laughs> again, again, way ahead of its time, because, you know, like... Mm. As we, as we started talking about music in a totally different way in the Robotech thing, mm. you know, song, songs get dovetail or they're shoehorns. <laughs> mixing my animal metaphors. <laughs> um, songs get shoehorned into movies right. ineffectually by people who don't understand music. Right. Because film music is its own thing that is does not play by the same rules as pop music. Right. It can be it can be very repetitive, but yes. in a good way. It yeah. can have a theme that slowly builds. Mm. Um, John Carpenter. Just knew all this stuff off the bat. If we were mm -hmm. saying this to him, he'd be like, "Yeah, duh." Right. Because yeah. the move, the scene is this long, and the moment is here, mm -hmm. and the music has to be this long. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, Halloween theme, immortal. Mm -hmm. uh, my other favorite one is from Escape from New York. Mm -hmm. um, and just a quick little nostalgic anecdote: I once mm -hmm. went to this 
I don't know if you remember this one. There was a tour called the Escape from New York tour of uh, a rock. It was just the name of the tour, and the li- the lineup was Deborah Harry of Blondie. Oh! This, is many, this is many years ago. Three fourths of the Talking Heads, um, because David Byrne was at the time too cool, even so. Tom Tom Club and Jerry Harrison, and at the time the Ramones existed, mm. and it, the Ramones closed the show. It was so. It was these wow. sort of. The Escape from New York, like New Yorky mm-hmm. arts, pop, punk, CBGB rock. sort of thing. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gods, the, the yeah. Ramones, yeah, amazing. But and they called it Escape from New York tour, and this oh, one of the nice meta geeky moments. Um, in between the sets, as they were setting up for the Ramones' last set, the roadie comes out and he's on stage for way too long, and you don't know what the fuck he's doing, and he picks up the guitar. And you hear this thrum, you know, mm-hmm. when was, yeah, just the tone. And he's just there on the guitar and he's like, what are you doing, dude? Are you done? Can we see the remote now? And he starts plucking at it and he starts playing the Escape from New York theme music. Nice. That really slow build. Yeah. I can't even, I can't even hum it out right now, but, but look, but just look it up and listen to the Escape from New York oh, yeah. theme music. It starts really low, really subtle. Yeah. Just like, Dun, 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 or something. It's, 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 it's a little bit like the Terminator theme. In fact, mm. the Terminator theme might have ripped All right. from James Cameron. Uh, James Cameron worked on Escape from New York. Uh, James Cameron. Oh, I would, at, uh, I, okay, I think that's in the bag. Then. Yeah, James Cameron was on uh, was on the special effects crew for Escape from New York for the uh, the the readout for this the weird little glider plane thing. Yeah, it's it's not it's not unlike the Terminator. The Terminator team is so like da 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 da, and I think the Escape from New York thing is like one note different from that. <laughs> yeah, but but came first. Yes. Anyway, so that was a good moment, yeah, and I recognized it. I didn't even know. And again, how music works is, I I hadn't seen Escape from New York a thousand times by then, but I mm. recognized it from something. It was evoking the feeling yeah. instantly. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, John Carpenter. I mean, again, with Halloween, it's, he's, I mean, it's a great, Halloween, again, people watch it and they're like, oh, it's so 70s or it's so early 80s or whatever, but you have to remember how cutting edge it was in terms of its technique and that the fucking synthesizer shit that you're all used to, Mm. the shit that's making you all fucking have such a big willy heart on for Stranger Things and everything else comes from this fucking guy. And if you do not recognize that, I kind of hate you. If you like the soundtrack Mm. from Drive... Fuck you! You're a John Carpenter fan. If you like the, fuck you, you, like, you are a John Carpenter. You're a John fan, Carpenter yeah. fan right away because without John yeah. Carpenter, you do not get half the aesthetic that's in Drive. Number one, let yeah. alone the music that's in Drive. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but you know, the music in Drive is great. That, that oh, was it's a, fantastic. That was a thumbs it's, up. It's on a Drive, thumbs right? up on Drive. It's, a, a, it's a fuck you if you if you like Drive, but you have no love for John Carpenter, right? Which right, I don't. Right. You got it. You got to understand. I just assume somebody. I'm, I again, I'm so used to having to defend my love of horror. I just assume someone's <laughs> already yelling at the podcast for me to shut the fuck up about this stuff. That Drive is a better movie than Halloween. And first of all, why would you compare them? I mean, it doesn't matter. But if you're talking music, literally, literally. Drive does not exist without John Carpenter. Drive does not exist without Halloween. Okay. Um, Yeah. Which, and that's something you can actually quantitatively compare. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's all. Totally. You could, you could musicologically compare it. I didn't say that word, right? But (laughs) this is all leading up. There has to be some good party we can go to, which involves like the theme from Halloween sort of. Segway mashed up into the themes from Drive and oh, we'll just trip out sure so and be like happy. Yeah. And like, wow. And then just put in this, this is yeah. cool party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing. So here's, here's the other thing that I think I wanted to really bring up about the music, particularly. <clears throat> when people go back and 
uh, after, well, of our generation. Because again, it's, it's come around now, right? Like it's cool again, like that music is cool again, right? And it's all John Carpenter and it's all 80s music and, go and the Goblins and all those guys, the Italian mm -hmm. horror guys, they're all sort of cribbing from each other, John Carpenter and the Goblins and, and all that stuff. Um, and the synthesizer, the heavy synthesizer music. Um, and synthesizer, even as a concept, as a main instrument, right? A lead instrument as opposed to a guitar or as opposed to like a cello or a stringed instrument. The synthesizer becoming to, coming to the forefront. Um, again, John Carpenter pushes that forward. And in terms of movie music, um, <clears throat> he's the one that does that and puts it front and center. Um, and it becomes such a cliche and it gets cribbed mm. so often into so many shitty bad movies you watch it forever and it becomes a cliche. It's like going back to some John Carpenter music, um, depending on when, especially if you were doing it in the 90s, you were like, uh, it all feels kind of the samey same. But that's not John mm. Carpenter's fault for being a mad crazy genius that affected a whole bunch of shit. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. So you have to, you really need to contextualize a lot of things, um, I think, uh, in terms mm. of going back because... Uh, Okay, I'm going to try to keep this really short because I had this massive thought this morning that I had to write down, which was, look, in the 90s, uh, and I'll bring... No, you know, Massive sorry. thought time. Time. No, okay, stop. I'm going to leave this for issues, actually. All right, I'm going to stop. I'm going to leave this for issues, okay. actually, because it's a okay. thing I want to talk about, which is Carpenter okay. in the mid-90s and late-90s and sort of what happened and why does he sort of fall off as uh, making what most people consider some of his least, his least best work, including me. Mm, okay. Some of it's okay. really not great. Okay. Um, okay. And part of it has to do with the music, and I want to talk about that uh, later. Um, but part of and the thing I can sort of tease about that is the, his music gets so popular that it becomes uh, a cliche in its own right. Um, and the fact that one of the things you could fault maybe John Carpenter for was not moving on from that fast enough, mm. um, not realizing that it was this feedback loop that was actually negatively impacting his, his later work. Um, mm. but anyway, we can talk about that in issues. Um, uh, music wise, and what else do we want? What else do I want to say about his, his music? Um, yeah, I mean, he was also, you know, also credit John Carpenter for sort of riding the, the metal wave. One of the reasons I sort of also maybe gravitated towards his movies later uh, during the 80s was that he was all, if he wasn't using synthesizer in the front, in the foreground, he was using crunchy, crunchy, pretty much crunchy metal guitars. Oh, yeah, um, totally crunchy. Crunchy metal guitars. Um, and as much as you can say, uh, the song Big Trouble in Little China um, by the Coupe de Vils, which I think was the, the band that you were trying to come up with, which is John Carpenter, Alan Haworth, and some other dude. Um, uh, while not the greatest song in the world, uh, is catchy as fuck. Um, and uh, I would Big run... Trouble. Uh, in Little China. Uh, yeah, so he was using some metal guitars, which I certainly, which I certainly appreciated um, and was interested in a, in a sort of a version of rock that kind of worked for me. Um, and for those that don't know, uh, I'll do a little pimping for the man. Um, he just dropped a couple of albums called Lost Themes 1 and 2, um, which mm. are not, in fact, Lost Themes at all. He, he <clears throat> claims that uh, his uh, music publisher forced him to use that title. Um, it's, oh. it's all original music. Um, and again, it vacillates between uh, synthesizer-heavy and guitar and metal-ish mm -hmm. guitar-heavy stuff. It's still very mm -hmm. cinematic, shock surprise. Mm -hmm. And he's actually on tour mm -hmm. with it again. Uh, he took wow. the first album on tour, and he's on tour again this, I think, right now with the second album. If you want to check out Carpenter okay. uh, on tour, I don't know who his backing band is. I don't know if Alan Howarth, if you don't know, is who is usually his soundtrack collaborator after a certain period of time. Mm. Um, 
uh, and was in this Coupe de Ville's band um, uh, as well. Uh, is on tour with him or not? But okay, wait. So this Lost Themes does not contain like alternate takes of the Escape from no. New York theme because I would get that in a second. Yes. No, it doesn't. You know, uh, like the Beatles <laughs> anthology with all their different takes on shit. Oh my uh, god, I would love to hear like. <laughs> The yeah. almost versions of Escape from New York. And by the way, during that whole rant, I was actually trying, in, well, mainly listening to you. I was, also, <laughs> I was trying in my head to recall the Escape from New York theme. Because you said that, the, yeah, it was rock. I was circling back to the moment of the Escape from New York concert. That was why. It was synthesizer bed of what we'd eventually start to call ambient music. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, but sure. just big synthesizer tone and just a dude with a guitar picking out. And I, what is it? Oh, God, never mind. My, my, my tunefulness is not working right now. It's all good. Anyway, let's, let's, let's get back to that I'll definitely, uh, later. No problem. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it just... It, and again, I'll get to this in issue. Sort of, it, it it does come back to bite him in the ass. I think as a film, as a creator, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that 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 his music is so um, ubiquitous and so fucking useful for particularly a certain genres of movies, where you get one guy on a keyboard and you've got a whole soundtrack um, all mm-hmm. of a sudden. Um, and again, his his incredible elevating the genre use of repetition, as you're talking about in music, because like uh, particularly for me, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily like Halloween three. I think it's being uh, re. Uh, evaluated in recent years and the only reason I'm bringing it up because he does not direct that he does not write that but he does do the music for it and oh. it's insanely repetitive but even listening to it separately which I love to do it's and it's the perfect you, you use the perfect word it has propulsion to, and he didn't use propulsion what did you say it, it gets you excited uh, yeah. his music like even if it's repetitive man it gets you the fuck up and ready for something to happen um, uh, and and it's super propulsive um, for me. That would be the word I would use for it. it propulsive is a good word there. It's yeah. crazy how and how minimalist it is and how much it – when married with a horror imagery and horror <clears throat> editing and a horror milieu, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it is so right the fuck spot on. Um, and again, um, fortunately or unfortunately, becomes indicative of a certain time period of film. Um, sure. Okay, I think I've beaten the music thing to death uh, from my point of view. You got anything else you want to throw in that on that? No, I'm um, no, I'm good. Just good. You know, still, Big Trouble in China, one of the best films ever. Still, without John Carpenter's finest music, how about that? There you go. Even, there you even, go. even with his even his his B game of music, Big Trouble in yeah. China, one of the best films ever. There you go. So. To sort of round this out before we get into issues, I, uh, or actually one other, ah, fuck, we didn't even talk about his remakes and his attitude, but maybe we'll get back. Hold on. Uh, the thing that might I do, be my issue. Yeah, okay, <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, cool. So one of the things, just to finish off influence and, uh, yeah, like I said, before we move on into issues, listen to this list of people, if you're a geek, that he's worked with, okay? And this is a partial list that I, just th- I threw together from memory, okay? Mm. Deborah Hill, Dean Cundy. Ennio Morricone, Kurt Russell, Jeff Bridges, W.D. Richter, Rob Bottin. He basically gave K&B their start. If you're if you're a special effects guy fan, Greg Nicotero and that whole crew. Um, uh, James Wong, Victor Wong, Jeff Imada, James Liu, Christopher fucking Reeve, Mark motherfucking Hamill, Keith motherfucking David, Roddy Roddy Piper, Stephen King, Ice Cube, 
And then moving into the more modern area, Amber Heard, Lindsay Fonseca, Ron Perlman. The list just fucking goes, man. Like, and this is, again, this wouldn't be surprising if we're talking about like a, ma- a super, super mainstream director. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just going to oh. pull, you know, fucking Stephen, K- Stephen, Stephen Spielberg or somebody out of my ass. Mm-hmm. This is a quote unquote horror movie director that, sure, it wasn't exactly perfectly A-list, A-list actors or talent, but he was able to inf- bring these people in to raise, elevate the genre of everything that he was working on. Um, people wanted to work with him because he, he's just recognized, yeah. recognized as what yeah. he is. Um, yeah. So just hats off. So just for that list, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah. No, that's great. And I can only imagine if you're an actor and you get called in to, you know, try out for a John Carpenter movie, like if you're a film familiar person like you, Whatever weird shit it was, you knew you were going to be in a movie. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You were going to be in a, a crafted movie of right. some kind. Right. And actors like that kind of challenge if they have confidence in the, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the best box office filmmaker or the, you know, yeah. best DVD seller in Hungary. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I just said a bunch of wrong things. Let's move on. <laughs> Uh, I, I just want to say hats off to the Hungarian DVD sellers that are listening to Elevating the Genre podcast. Yes. Big shout out. We love you guys um, and gals. All right, so let's move on to a segment we call issues, which are things that you know we sort of kind of maybe take issue with. Um, uh, it sounds like you want to maybe go off on the remakes thing because I do have some, some things to say about that as well. Um, yeah. Go for it. What, do you, what, what, what you got on your brain? Well, you know, I don't know much about it, and I don't even have an issue with John Carpenter. So yeah, <laughs> my issue is that they're supposedly doing a remake of Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, I guess yeah. I, I do know that The Rock is supposedly in it. Yes, that's my that's okay. what I understand okay. as well. Remember, The Rock is a high-quality, interesting figure in pop culture to me. But Yes. And also, if I, I can, know. real quick, before we just jump, we jump yeah. off The Rock. Could I just say just quick before we jump off The Rock? All right, anyway. Um I actually think if there's anybody who's going to pull off a Jack Burton-esque character, he is one of the few actors that I would trust to do that. Oh my he, God, you're right. He execu- think- He's able to comment on being macho, machismo, douchebag yeah, guy yeah. while still being funny, while still yeah. being able to execute all of that. Um, yeah. So I do trust him in that world, which is weird, yeah. even though I certainly don't want a Big Trouble Little China remake. But yeah. at least whoever's behind that idea has got the right fucking idea. You're right. Yeah, I, I should look up who's directing it, or, or I don't know. But I don't. Yes, know. I, and I, I, yeah, I, I love that you said that. And uh, you know, I'll give a quick shout out to um, uh, my friends at the Nerds of Color. I also did a podcast with Keith Chower there discussing who was the uh, nerdiest Asian American actor working today. <laughs> yes, I saw. And that after time. after much uh, debate, we somehow ended up at The Rock just because he's crossed over all these different things. And yes, for example, his work in GI Joe, he's basically doing that. Yeah. He's doing a caricature of a hypermachismo guy. You know, who lifts a whole, you know, <laughs> Browning 50 cal machine gun. Yeah, of course he does. But, but, but he, but yeah, but we're with him. We believe him. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's charming. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Super. Okay. So I'm glad you said that. Yes. He could do that John Wayne's S thing and do a commentary and be mm-hmm. all, all those things. Um, yeah. But also, yes. Also, sort of no need for it. Don't really want them to make it. I do. Yeah. And I am very interested in it, obviously, because it'll be very interesting, whatever happens. Mm. And, you know, just circle back to my, um, you know, my Asian-American perspective on things. Mm. I, again, like, uh, you know, so we, we've had PC culture. We've had ebbs and flows in political, um, you know, trends. And, um, mm-hmm. 
sorry, what I'm just saying. Somewhere along the line, people have lost sight of how to make a racist, how to make a racist movie, and how not to make a racist movie. Somewhere along the line, I, sorry, this is a side rant. Do I, it. I, I, be, I believe America is in declining state of basic fundamental knowledge about Asian things. Okay. It has to do. It, it has to do with a lot of things. Uh, partly the you know the interwebs, partly the waves of immigration, which make everything confused. But somehow, for whatever reasons, my casual experience, people know less about you know the difference between Chinese, Japanese, mm. Korean than they ever have because we've all been umbrellaed into this thing called Asian, which uh -huh. we accepted would would be a PC term, which we could all use. But <clears throat> what ended up happening was people now just don't can't tell the difference. You know, you you know the things because you you studied in the different areas so you you know can i know you some can, stuff yeah you you know but I, i'm not talking about obscure stuff like yeah, in yeah. Depth, like chinese history stuff i'm talking about basic things like his ramen japanese <laughs> or Taiwanese. real yeah. real simple stuff what yeah. language did he speak in korea right you know right yeah anyway the only way this also reflects on the fact that people mm -hmm. think Big Trouble in Little China is racist because they don't really know what racist is. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's very likely Big Trouble in Little China will be an extremely racist movie. <laughs> the remake. The remake. Right? You, know, you know what I'm saying? Sorry, yeah. Sorry. The remake. The remake of one of the best Asian American uh, yeah. elevating, yeah. culture crossing, yeah. unifying films ever could turn into an incredibly racist movie because oh, people do not. Suck. Yeah have the touch or the understanding of, mm. that John Carpenter was doing. Or yeah. not. It's or not, they could they could Maybe. do it. I just have lowered expectations because mm. no one's done it. Frankly, no one's done it for Asian Americans like that. Yeah. Since John Carpenter. On you know, in that on in that scale of his yeah. he's in Hollywood and he gets stars and you know whatever. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Cool. I mean yeah, no, I think that's a totally legit uh, fear, um, because I mean, what can we point to as a big budget Hollywood film that that, that has gotten just about any of that shit right uh, lately? Um, not so, recently. Not recently. <laughs> definitely not recently. Um, for particularly in, in in reference to the Asian Americans, um, for sure. Um, yeah, no, totally. And my my issue goes a little, you know. Again, we can sort of talk about John Carpenter's later oeuvre that a lot of people are sort of revisiting now, and some people are finding stuff to like, Village of the Damned, and, uh, uh, and my issue is vampires. I mean, uh, I'll admit, um, <laughs> I was fucking, I was, I don't even remember, I think I was maybe 20 or 21 when that came out, and I just walked out of that movie just being like, that was a sexist pile of hogwash. Um, hmm. I have not, re I'll be honest, I have not revisited it. Um, I'm not sure I'm ever going to. Um, I just remember being, even then, just sort of like, uh, that made me feel slimy in a bad way, uh, not a good horror movie way. Um, just that, like, uh, yeah, I don't remember, again, I don't, I don't recall it, but I do remember it being just completely off tone. Whereas, like you said, Big Trouble in Little China has sort of a reverence and a, and a love for this thing. Um, vampires just felt very angry towards women and, um, and just did not have a problem just brutalizing that into the into the ground for no purpose. Um, I also thought that script was incredibly weak, if I if I remember mm. correctly as well. So that was an issue for me. Cool. All right. All right. Uh, Moving into final thoughts. Uh, although we we sort of ranged all over the place. This may be one of our more <laughs> one of our more scattershot podcasts. But um, uh, yeah. I mean, again, for me, final thoughts are just you know, um, Carpenter. Uh, I think gets all the love he deserves these days, which is great. Um, 
do if you to sort of final thought his own with his own words uh, all the remakes that are happening around John Carpenter's universe he's very rarely involved with I heard the man in a, in a personally in a Q&A when I was living in LA he is happy to bank a check when somebody shows up to remake one of his movies and he sits in his basement yeah. writing comic books and smoking weed that's that's a, and playing video games it's a direct quote from the man um so and I don't blame him uh you know let's you know he's, uh, he's earned it he's fucking earned it um there is a rumor that I guess he's producing yet another remake of Halloween I guess but uh, who knows who gives a shit um at the end of the day if it happens it happens but uh yeah I just for me yeah, my main hits, and we didn't even talk about this movie, which I could talk about for hours, uh, is Big Trouble in Little China and Prince of Darkness, I think is a criminally underrated film, underseen film, with an amazing Dennis Dunn and Victor Wong performance uh, in it as well. And the women in that are fucking fantastic. Uh, Acting-wise, some of the best special effects, uh, some really well-executed, simple special effects. And, and not a spoiler alert, but I will just tell you, it's not the technically the final shot, but it's the the climactic shot of the plot. Is in my for my money again goosebumps. I say it a lot, but it actually happens to me. People, I'm a physical guy. The the best final climactic shot of almost any film. Like I will hold it up with anybody, anything, you name it. Fucking the final shot, and and fucking uh, mm. by Gary B. Kibbe, uh, who's the DP on that film, <clears throat> um, and John Carpenter, mm-hmm. and. and Prince of Darkness is so bloody fucking effective. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, and again, spo- spoilers, fuck off. We're just looking up that shot now. Yeah. <laughs> Good, gonna expect. Go gonna for expect it. Please be, do. If you be, want to. To be awesome by it. It's, it's awesome. Um, any final thoughts you got, brother, on this? Um, again, we're going to come back to Greg Pak's stuff at some later time. Um, cool. But got to mention that Greg Pak is writing a comic book, which is a mashup of Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. Dig this shit, ladies and gentlemen. And it just happened to come out this month. And um, uh, again, so we're not too deep into that one. But it's my understanding that Carpenter is just cashing the check and not involved in the movie Big Trouble in Little China correct. remake. Is that, that correct? That's what I, from what I have researched from my information, yes, that's correct. From from my understanding, he has sanctioned and blessed this comic book version for yes. some reason. And in my brief reading, I think it's pretty cool. And I think it definitely hits a few spots that are good, citing the Chinese hells again. Nice. And, um, Hell of the upside-down um, sinners, baby. Come on. Right, right, right. Totally. Another amazing use of English, just that phrase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like, delicious. And um, again, of course, Greg is also an Asian-American person, so he's... Uh, so he gives uh, Wang Chi an interesting storyline. He's mm-hmm. he's interested in all those threads, and he's a fan because he's seen the, the the same movies that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see what happens. Very briefly, both both Kurt Russell characters from alternate universes <laughs> meet up somehow, and um, so, so again. Purely on a Kurt Russell fan level, well, yeah, you got to pick pick that one up. Uh, yeah, Jack Burton <laughs> and fucking Snake Plissken in the same place. I mean, yeah, it's you can sort of hear him, hear Jack, uh, hear uh, Kurt Russell saying the lines in yeah. the comic book, and, and that is just a testament to the pretty good execution of the of the Kurt Russellness. Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, very cool. Um, <laughs> awesome. So, uh, real quick, we also just want to let you know what we're working on. Um, uh, I am proud to uh, say that I am working with a company out here called Girly Inc., uh, who also is run by the same woman who runs a place called Molen Geek, and that sounds like Molenbeek. And for those that are on the um, 
international news tip, yes, Molenbeek is the quartier of uh, Brussels where the terrorists come from and dig what this woman is doing. She is executing a um, incubator for um, women, particularly Muslim women, for techno based in technology. Um, so um, a technological incubator uh, trying to educate particularly that particular um, area does not necessarily have to be Muslim women, but obviously that area makes up a lot of them. Um, mm -hmm. And she's having a lot of great success. And uh, I am very fortunate to have been uh, asked to uh, uh, to moderate a panel on women in film and technology and VR um, that uh, Gerlink and Mullen Geek are, uh, are behind. So uh, super excited about that. That will be happening in, uh, in November. Um, uh, happens to be something I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 12 percent behind, um, which is awesome. Where, where, where is this happening? Over Sorry, that's going to happen in Brussels, ladies and gentlemen. So if we've got any Brussels listeners, uh, it will be happening in Brussels. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, pay attention. We'll, I'll sort of throw it out as it gets as it gets closer as well. Um, and if you happen to be around, maybe we'll, maybe we can. Ooh, maybe we can do like a live stream of it. I didn't even think of that. <gasps> ooh, at least a little bit of it. A little bit, yes. Yeah. I, I, I would like to see. Okay, cool. Yeah, man. That's a great idea. Thank you, brother. That's a fantastic idea. Anyway, what are you working on, bro? What do you got? Uh, I'm writing a lot of things. Um, this week, I'm still uh, working on my YouTube channel, karaokerhapsody.com, with a special emphasis towards cosplay karaoke. And this is going to segue into probably next week's episode a little bit. But uh, the one I really, really want you to watch, um, Jessica Jones singing Jewel. <laughs> my friend, my friend Victoria cosplayed as Jessica Jones because right. we like Jessica Jones, and right. she had the very <laughs> funny idea. Wait, Netflix you, Jessica Jones or comic book Jessica Jones? Netflix Jessica Jones. Yeah, ah, okay. The, the easier costume. Yes, the easier. Costume. <clears throat> what she what she wears naturally. <laughs> anyway, okay. yep. She just had a very funny idea that she would sing a Jewel song, and if you know the history that. Of Jessica Jones and Jewel, that would—that's just our clever. But just go somehow to YouTube and you know search for some combination of Jessica Jones, Jewel, or cosplay karaoke, and just, just just click or share the thing once or twice. It would be great. It'd be great, uh, people. Yeah. As always, remember if you love us, uh, like us. We love you. Please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find us. Uh, we got a Facebook page at Elevating the Genre, as well. There's also the YouTubes uh, where you can see our shining, beautiful faces. Um, uh, you know, the general, the general request and it's real and it helps us comment, like subscribe, um, and all that good stuff. And speaking of next week's episode, just got teased. Next week's episode is Dom. Uh, we're going to talk about Sigourney Weaver. Yes. And how she elevates just about everything around her. Probably. And it's just really tall, so just yeah, elevating so. is just a natural thing that <laughs> happens around yeah. And And most yeah. recently it was revealed she's been cast as the, uh, the villain of some sort in the upcoming Defenders series, which means she'll face off against Jessica Jones and Luke Cage, Iron Fist, and Daredevil. And we don't really know what character that is, so we'll do a little speculation. Mm. Probably. Of which I'll I fucking have fucking zero clue on, but we'll give it's it a, a shot. Great, I'll give it a it's shot. It's a great puzzle. It's sort of like a reverse stunt casting. Because it's like <laughs> they, 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 they picked an actor who doesn't naturally Fit leap out at you. Yeah, so, right. so that means the stunt is who is she going to be? It's a great stunt, actually. Who, who's clever. she going to be? Super anyway. fucking clever. Anyway, Scorny Weaver. We're going to get way into that. Sure, for sure. Scorny Weaver Aliens, next week. Ghostbusters. Galaxy Quest, all that shit. All that shit, baby. Thank you, guys. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are elevating the genre. I'm Christopher. 
I'm Dominic. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, guys. Cheers, and we will see you next week. Bye. Massive thought time.